Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Ash Bennington, the senior host and crypto editor of Real Vision. I'm sure most of you have heard of Real Vision. Obviously, they're making their way across the internet with a lot of great guests, and typically the host there is Ash, and today we have him as a special guest. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. All right, Ash. So probably uh, like myself, I'm not very familiar with your background and kind of how you showed up at Real Vision, so maybe you could fill us in there first. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long road for me. Uh, journalism is actually my third career. I started out when I was in my twenties doing IT management consulting. I was a tech guy. I learned how to code when I was like eleven. When I was a nerdy kid, I was super passionate about everything to do with computers when I was younger. And obviously, this was during the period of the birth of the internet. So I was very fortunate that I got to uh, I got to participate in the, some of the very early years of it. And then ultimately from, from being a tech consultant, I moved into working in financial services. So I was a, I was a vice president at Credit Suisse, uh, assistant vice president, technical expert when I was, I think, 26 years old. And that really changed the trajectory of my life working at a, working at a big investment bank. I didn't grow up with a passion for finance. It was pretty simple. You know, as a, as a tech person, you realize that no matter what you do in the tech field, whether it's uh, doing development work or literally running cable and dragging it along the floor, you make more money when you do it at a bank. And so I kind of was curious about that and I got interested in finance. And so after, after working in banking uh, for, for, for years, in my mid-30s, I, I got the opportunity to become a reporter at CNBC and basically to cover the field that I'd worked in. And I just thought it was a lot more fun than working for a living. So journalism is, is it's super cool, right? I get to talk to the smartest people in the world in finance and tech and crypto. It's just been an, an incredible ride. Well, you know, when it comes to these commercial brands like CNBC, right? You know, a lot of people think today, you know, whether, how real is some of the news, right? So typically, what does that process even look like when you guys would aggregate or dig up these stories? And how do you kind of fact check them? I had a great experience at CNBC, but it was a very atypical experience. So this was about uh, 10, 12 years ago at the financial blogging explosion, you know, before folks who do the stuff that you and I do, Joe, asking these questions uh, over Zoom and doing these remote video interviews, the sort of the revolution in financial journalism was blogging. So my CNBC experience was very strange. I was living in, in New York. CNBC is obviously located in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. They've got this big, beautiful, fancy studio campus. And um, I started just crushing it on blogging. I literally like the in terms of the number of pieces I was doing, I was writing like five pieces a day. And I, I was writing more for CNBC than anyone else was at the time. Five pieces a day is a lot. Obviously shorter pieces. And one day they were like, you know, you, you know, you work in New York City, like, you know, you should really come and be part of CNBC. You should be part of like our culture, come and work in the office every day. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come do that. But I'm going to go from five stories a day to two because the commute totally sucks. And they were like, stay home, dude. Keep keep writing. So, uh, you know, my, my experience was super atypical. I got to, you know, in many ways do what I, what I do at Real Vision now, which is, is follow my own interests and write about things that I found interesting. And now, and now I get to talk to, to guests who I find interesting. Well, that's awesome. So now that you're at Real Vision, I mean, how many guests have you probably interviewed in, when it comes to the crypto space in general? Many, many hundreds. I don't know. I, I've, <laughs> done, I've done about 600 shows that are like officially counted, but that doesn't count all the, the events we do and, and the Twitter spaces and all that stuff. So it's, uh, it's a lot. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of different views and opinions across the globe as a whole, right? Maybe for our listeners, can you give us some 
key insights into what you learn as a host in the crypto community? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is just how incredibly early it is in this space. It feels like to me, we're in the, if you use the sort of the internet metaphor, like where we are, we're in the, we're in the early nineties. It's like 1992, 1993. So Real Vision, we, we have two different sides. We have the capital markets and macro side where we do interviews with hedge fund managers and asset managers and folks who work at banks and those kind of people. And then we have the crypto side and, and we had a guest on, you know, a very well-known investor and who's in his 80s now and brilliant guy. He's had an amazing career as an investor. And he was on a show with one of my Real Vision colleagues and she asked him about crypto. And he was like, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't like anything about it, basically. And he was like, look, number one, he's like, I think Bitcoin's going to get hacked. You know, number two, I think it's it's become kind of a religion. And number three, it's like, there's no way to price this stuff, you know? And, and it's interesting because I don't think those are stupid questions, particularly if you, if you're coming to this from the outside, if you don't work in this space day in and day out, like I could understand why people would ask those questions, but it just shows you how far away, you know, the establishment are these people who are, who are very successful hedge fund managers or asset managers of some kind. And then you hang out in the space and you talk to the people that you and I talk to Joe, these you know, these young, hip DGENs in their, in their 20s. And it's like their worldview is just, it's like they're coming from just a completely different place. And so the range of opinions that you see across crypto is, is so vast because of that. And I would also say the other interesting thing to me about crypto is crypto isn't like just like one thing, right? It's like saying the word like music. And it's like, well, there's punk and there's hip hop and then there's like Mozart and then there's jazz and it's like, well, what is a music fan like? And it's like, well, if you a punk rocker versus somebody who's hanging out at the Metropolitan Opera House, these are two totally different people. And we see that, I think, in crypto as, as well. You know, there's there's obviously a, a very passionate, vibrant Bitcoin community, which has a very different worldview in, in many ways than people who are equally passionate about Ethereum. You have people who who see the underlying blockchain technology and they're like, this would be pretty cool to trade stocks and bonds and currencies and commodities on, right? And then you have people in the NFT space who are who are artists and musicians and super passionate about this stuff. And you know, I go to a lot of events. And if you go to if you go to like Salt, for example, the strategic asset conference that Anthony Scaramucci puts on, it's it's all hedge fund managers. It's all you know guys in blue suits and the masters of the universe. And then you go to an NFT conference, right? It's like, you know, there's like 16 year old kids there and their mom dropped them off for the day, right? And it's like, they're super into art and music and all kinds of like other sort of very cool artsy things. The space is so huge. It's kind of like uh, Sam Bankman being at the Salt Conference and then the Manhattan Student Thai guy going to the NFT conference. Right. As, as a correlation, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, that's true. And it, it is funny, too, because you do see the suit and tie guys at like the NFT events, right? Because it's like there's a fear, hey, if we don't jump on this, right, we're gonna get left behind. And that's, that makes sense. I mean, I can still remember, you know, when I used to be one of the young guys when I was in my 20s and in the 90s working at Credit Suisse or wherever and seeing guys who seemed old to me, they're my age now. And there were these guys who would say things like, you know, listen, man, the internet's cool. I, I love the fact that you guys are doing what you're doing there. It's really neat, but it doesn't affect my business. There's nothing to do with me. I'm not an internet business. And you look back on it now, right? Some 25 years later and you're like, show me a business that doesn't involve the internet, right? Like what business are you in that doesn't involve the internet? Everything needs technology. Yeah. 
So, you know, in speaking to this guy or maybe other clients through Real Vision or through these interviews, how do you first get them started on a path with what is actually crypto? I usually like to start out by hearing about their background, because usually if you know where they've been, you can get a sense of where they're going. And like, you can at least maybe draw the line or start to see the path. And it totally depends on what they're doing. Like there are people who are like, this thing that you call crypto, man, I don't care about that. I'm a Bitcoiner. Like stop, I don't even want to hear the word crypto. And obviously that's a very different perspective. And the other interesting thing for me is it's almost like sports in this space right now. It's like, you got to pick a team. And I don't pick a team, right? Like I'm incredibly sympathetic to the arguments that Bitcoiners make. Every time I see, you know, some protocol on the DeFi side blow up that nobody's ever heard of, I'm like, well, Bitcoiners are right, aren't they? <laughs> They're like, hey, I don't know what you guys are doing, but our network is working fine, you know? Which isn't to say that I'm, I don't see the promise of DeFi. You can see the future of finance in DeFi. The question is, you know, like how do we get there and what does it look like and what's that trajectory? And, you know, does it take one year? Probably not. Does it take three, five, ten? We just don't know. Like, there's there's so much that we don't know. And one of the biggest things, obviously, like the uh, fellow mentioned, was just the ability to be able to value these assets, right? right? And there's definitely multiple models available out there. We've seen them maybe all go in different directions over the last year. Mm-hmm. So how do you start off that explanation to somebody how they should maybe model something to determine a price, you know, to answer? I usually start with the negative, right? Which is to say like, hey, listen, if you're a traditional financial investor, right? If you are, have you been involved in real estate? You value property by cap rate. If you have been involved in the fixed income market, you know what you're looking at. You're looking at yield to maturity. If you're a stock investor, you know that you're looking at price to equity ratios, peg ratios, whatever measures of growth versus earnings, how much you're paying for cash flows. The answer is there isn't that right now. (laughs) Bitcoin doesn't trade at around 24,000 as we speak today because of some inherent valuation on cash flow. It trades, you know, there's a a lot of different models out there. You see, I think, stock to flow and some of the other models and and maybe they have utility. And when you look at the long-term chart of Bitcoin, you, you can see the trajectory of price and you can kind of get a sense of there are those, I, I won't even say this it, it is for myself, but there are people who will say, hey, look, you can get a sense by looking at the trajectory on a technical basis. There is, you know, obviously the, the having events, which reduce the amount of Bitcoin for the block reward that you get for miners. And they say, hey, look, this is what the what the price trajectory is. In science, they call this, you know, reasoning by induction. Like this is the, the thing that's always happened in the past. But I'm also very mindful of, uh, I don't know if you've seen Nassim Taleb's Thanksgiving turkey chart. He does this cool chart. You you look it up. It's a cool one. It's a chart that shows the happiness of a turkey. And, (laughs) you know, they're just getting happier and happier and happier. And until the day before Thanksgiving, and then their happiness drops pretty dramatically. And so you can only say definitively it's worked in the past. And and maybe when something works long enough in the past, it's suggestive that it will continue to work in the future. But you are making a logical leap when you assume that it's going to continue that way. So these things are very hard to model now. And by the way, I think if we're having this conversation, Joe, maybe in, in 2028 or something, we may say, hey, look, yeah, there are inherent cash flows here. Proof of stake has been around in Ethereum now for five years, and we've got a, we've got a benchmark rate, and we can understand things. But it's really hard to do that. And if you have that whole like CFA tool set, you can't really apply it right now. To crypto, I, I expect crypto will be successful, and I expect we're going to have those models in the future in a way that we that we don't today. But as of right now, the, the answer is it's very speculative. Do you think a lot of the uh, value that's created is really 
based on the users that are coming to that network. Yeah, you know, Raul Pal, who of course is the founder of, of Real Vision and someone I've I've worked with for a very long time, has has looked at have things like wallet creation to understand the network effects. So network effects are a really interesting thing. If to use like kind of an old school metaphor, if you were the only person in the world who has a fax machine or a cell phone, right, it doesn't have a whole lot of value because you know you can't fax anybody, you can't text anybody, whatever the technology that you're trying to connect with is. And this this idea of network effects is the more broadly distributed throughout a culture this technology becomes, the more valuable it becomes. I think intuitively that's a very firm framework for thinking about value. And then the next level is to do sort of technical analysis on top of that, which Raul and some others have done to say, hey, look, as you, you can see that with wallet address creation, with value transaction creation, the value of the network to the participants on the network continues to grow. And so, you know, that to me is is incredibly interesting. Again, it's also very much in its infancy. There's nothing to say, look, I've survived the 2008 time period. We know that sometimes things can look stable and there can be a massive decrease in asset valuation. So do these numbers continue to track if there's a significant event in the future? We don't know. But there is some data suggesting that there is some credibility behind that way of thinking. Do you think the ability to be able to standardize or model these different protocols will ultimately bring in more institutional capital? Or based on all the interviews and people that you're talking to, what do you think is kind of holding back that wall of capital over the next few years? That's a great question. On the institutional side, some of it is the, the, the security and the stability of the network. In the case of Bitcoin, for example, that's been proved pretty well. And we're about to undergo a major change, obviously, in Ethereum with Emerge, but hopefully that will be successful. And as the months and years go by, we'll have uh, increased track record of stability. But the single biggest factor that prevents institutional capital from coming into the space is not technical in nature. It's legal, regulatory, and compliance. You know, if you are at a big bank, and I've had the, the pleasure of working in a big bank, I guess you could say, listen, it's never fun to work at a big bank. Working at a big bank, if anyone in like their 20s says, like, should I go and work at Goldman or JPM? I'm like, working in a bank is one of the greatest things ever to have done. You want right. to be in the <laughs> rear view mirror. So you're like, oh yeah, I did that. But look, the reality is the way banks work, they are incredibly risk averse. They are incredibly tightly regulated. And particularly in the wake of the 2007-2008 financial crisis era, there's an incredible amount of scrutiny in them. So they are reluctant, unless there is very clear guidance around the legal, regulatory, and compliance issues, things like anti-money laundering, know your client, all of these things that get drilled into. I remember working when I, my first day at Credit Suisse when I was in my 20s, and the first day was, was AML KYC training. And I was like... <laughs> You guys know, like I, I work in the data center. Like Credit Suisse doesn't trust me to talk to any clients, you know. And they were like, hey, everybody gets this training, right? And like, if you were the guy who was sweeping the floor, you got AML KYC training. And that is the culture of these banks. They're so risk averse, they're so conservative. So there's a there's a real challenge with adoption of institutional capital. Some of the custody issues have begun to be solved, at least in that they can they can partner with custodians that know how to do this stuff. But what we really need is that clarity around legal regulatory and compliance and increasingly this is becoming a regulatory excuse me a, a legislative issue as well as you see folks particularly it seems in the US Senate having these conversations right now Joe you know crypto's ethos is kind of a decentralized non-kyc type environment 
and things that have occurred recently, maybe like tornado cash where USDC gets frozen, kind of shows why people want that decentralized aspect. Now, it's kind of anyone's guess to where this really goes, but what is just your opinion on where the DeFi will go in regards to regulations? Do you think it will be a centralized aspect that most institutionals and funds will trade on and then there'll be a decentralized for maybe certain jurisdictions that don't ban it? What is your opinion? What feedback are you getting from across the globe anyway? Well, this is like, you know, when you see those hurricane prediction maps on the Weather Channel and they have the cone of uncertainty, (laughs) the further out you get, the less certain it becomes. Uh, Look, if I had to guess, and this is highly speculative, my suspicion is that what happens is we see regulation of the so-called on-ramps and off-ramps for retail investors and indeed institutional investors here in the U.S. and, and probably in Europe. Developing markets may look a little bit different, but what I, what I suspect happens is that the AML, KYC stuff happens on the on and off-ramp. So, you know, you're welcome to go and open an account at, uh, at Coinbase and, and you can have a, a MetaMask wallet, but ultimately there's a way of tying back your AML KYC at Coinbase or Kraken or wherever you're doing your business here in the U.S. to the wallets that you create, you know, for example, in Ethereum or other coins. But I, I think to your point, we did see with Tornado Cash, the federal government here in the U.S. saying, we're going to draw a line in the sand with this. And so I think we wind up with a kind of patchwork where you have this front end that's regulated, that's the on-ramps and off-ramps, and then you you ultimately have the back end, which is is less regulated. And and I also think that, look, there will always be people. I, I always have these, I have these conversations like with, with people, particularly like Bitcoiners who are like, who are like, man, I can run my Raspberry Pi and I can run a full node on it. And like, I know how to tour in, to go through like a, a series of these anonymous browsers. I'm like, you're right. It's going to be very hard to shut that down. But you know, the reality is if you want to get, you know, 99% of the market, they're going to be able to have that regulatory kind of nudge in that direction. And, 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 that, and that's what I see coming. But the flip side of this argument is we're in uncharted waters. We've never been here before. We don't really know. Government can be a tiny bit dysfunctional. And obviously, you know, there's the situation now where you have competing regulatory organizations who, who want to play a role in shaping this. And I mean, it's like how Bitcoin is treated differently by different branches of the government, right? So for IRS, it's property. CFTC can treat it as a commodity. So SEC weighs in on what coins are or are not securities. So there's a lot that has to happen in terms of harmonization. I think it's going to be a little bit chaotic for a while. But my sense is that this is only when you look at the chart in the long term, I'm not talking about price, I'm talking about adoption and, and acceptance and integration into the broader social, cultural, professional, business, financial infrastructure of the United States and indeed the world. I think this trade just bounces around a little bit, but it's only going in, in one direction as a technology, not in terms of price. So we kind of hit on models. There's not necessarily a model, the KYC, maybe some security tokens out there, decentralized, centralized. There's thousands and thousands of tokens that exist today, right? How would you maybe go about your thinking process and maybe some aspects you look at when, you know, maybe something for your own self? Well, this isn't a terribly sophisticated thing to say, but the, the first screen is to just look at market cap, right? And we know that market cap is an imperfect number and that sometimes that that can be manipulated. 
But you know, the what's the number now? You hear fifteen thousand different coins. You know, if you go below like the top one hundred, I'm actually scrolling and doing this right now. Yeah. When you scroll down below the top one hundred, there are a lot of names that I've never heard before, and I'm you know I'm in the space every day. So if you know everything outside the top one hundred looks pretty alien to me, or the top two hundred, whatever the number is you know, there's a fair chance that there's a, a, a lot of speculative stuff going on. And by the way, also, we should say, we know that there are frauds and scams that are happening out there. But also, there are just, you know, really smart young people who are trying to do cool stuff. And whether or not it survives or dies, that's ultimately up to the market. But most of the action, I think, is is focused in the, in the bigger protocol names. And I think that's what we try to follow uh, on Real Vision. And uh, that's that's what I spend most of my time looking at. How about when it comes to picking the right time to kind of enter the market? How do you look at that? And also based on what is actually happening in the economy today? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't try to time the market. All right, that's right. That's good. Then. I'm not that smart. But here's a, an interesting question. So what's happening today, and I was just talking about this on camera a, a couple of hours ago, is what you see is a lot of the pricing seems to be responding. You never know for sure why prices are moving. But it seems relatively clear that when you get news that looks highly inflationary, like you get a terrible print on CPI or whatever, you see the price of Bitcoin decline. Now, why why would that be? Well, one pretty plausible explanation is that the Fed obviously is in the United States, the primary creator of liquidity through monetary policy. Now, we've, we've had some liquidity creation through fiscal policy as well through during the stimulus package, et cetera. But but really, it's the Fed that is looking, and we know where the, the Fed positions itself right now. They've been very clear, Jay Powell has been very clear, that controlling inflation is the first priority and that 9.1% CPI prints will not stand. So every time you see a hot number come in on CPI or, or PPI or some other measure of inflation, PCE, whatever it is, you see the price of Bitcoin retreat. And that is this idea that the Fed is going to be draconian in the way they tighten. Maybe they go you know, 75 basis points, maybe they go 100. And and conversely, whenever you see numbers that suggest a weakening in labor markets, for example, or show that maybe we're past peak on inflation, you start to see digital assets catch a bid. Basically, Bitcoin catches bid and everything else trades relative to Bitcoin. Although there could be some Ethereum-specific stories. But it's fascinating because what you see is the so-called correlation trade. The correlation goes to one. Right. Like I was I was joking today, like if you worked at, a, at an office and your boss decided they were going to block any website that showed the price of Bitcoin and you wanted to know whether Bitcoin went up or down, you could just look at the Nasdaq 100 and know which direction Bitcoin went in. Right. Because everything is correlated. And this is the flip side, Joe, of the question that you asked earlier, which is about institutional capital flows coming into the digital asset space. It's kind of like I've, I've joked about this before. It's like you wanted institutional players. You got them, right? And now everything trades at a correlation of one. And, and that's very different from the view of the Bitcoiners. By the way, they, they may be right in the longer term, but, but in the shorter term, you know, there's been the, 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 the idea in the Bitcoin community that, hey, you know, this is an off-the-grid asset. This is something that's uncorrelated to everything. And, and eventually that may be the case. They may be right. You know, we may have this conversation in 2032, and it's 100% true. But for the time being, that, that hasn't been the case because everything in terms of pricing is being controlled by these liquidity flows. So based on the Fed tightening, right, do you think Bitcoin's only going to maybe resume its uptrend based on the Fed easing? I think it's probably one of those things that's true until it isn't. I think that that's the cycle we're in right now. 
But I actually kind of see the wisdom in the Bitcoin review on this. And I, I think in the long run, it will probably be less correlated than we see today. I, I could for certainly, you know, it's the old joke about predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. But I could certainly see a, a period, whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, where the trade is not about liquidity. It's about, you know, the value of the US dollar. It's about inflation. It's about something else. Or it's about the value of the underlying network in Bitcoin or Ethereum. So it's the phase that we're in right now. And it's one of those things that is, we don't know that it's going to be true forever. In fact, the most honest thing to say is we don't have any evidence either way. It's where we are today, six months from now, certainly six years from now, we could be in a completely different regime. What do you see as some headwinds and maybe some tailwinds maybe over the next year and what's happening in the economy and then the crypto market? So headwinds are inflation and the rapid withdrawal of liquidity from the markets by the Fed, the ECB, BOJ, pick your central bank of choosing. Regulatory uncertainty is always a headwind. It's always possible that in the short term, you you may have a, a group of our infinitely wise lawmakers who come together and, and pass a law that doesn't make any sense, not out of malice, but maybe because they just don't understand really the nuances of the space. So bad legislation is always a possibility. I think that probably gets sorted out in the long run. The good news about crypto now is that it has a constituency. And so we've seen this before when people wanted to change the tax code and, and crypto folks really got upset and they started calling their senators, and they started calling their congressmen, and they started doing this sort of very almost old school grassroots effort like, hey, I own crypto, I care about this, don't use me for your punching bag. I think in the long run that probably gets sorted out. But on the converse side, you could say if there were good legislation, good regulatory clarity, that would probably be uh, that would probably be a tailwind for the space. I think the other thing is, I think the Ethereum merge, ultimately, there's some of the smartest people in the world who are working on this. And the people who I talk to seem relatively confident about the way that this is going to go. And I think if it goes off without a hitch, this is uh, the metaphor that we've heard many times is that it's similar to changing the jet engines on an airplane at cruising altitude at 50,000 feet. And, and it is a very complex task. So if that succeeds, I think that will be a tailwind for the space. Conversely, if there is a problem, it could be really challenging. I've, I've said this before, I am not you know, reviewing Ethereum code myself, obviously, but I talk to people who do and they all seem very confident about it. That said, I always say like, look, this is a quarter of a trillion dollar or thereabouts asset. And it's one thing to do things in test nets. It's one thing to really try and simulate volume, but you really don't know what's going to happen when, when you basically change the underlying consensus mechanism of the protocol in production with a with a quarter trillion dollar asset. And so to me, there's a little bit, of, there's there's what you call in finance uh, tail risk. There's that low probability, high impact event if something goes wrong. But I think getting through that would probably be a, a shorter term uh, structural tailwind for the space if we we find ourselves having this conversation in, you know, in October and everything went well. So over the next year, if you think some of these tailwinds do play out, right? Do you think we're sitting around for another couple of years to kind of follow that same Bitcoin four-year cycle? Or do you think we're uh, decoupling from that? I think it's a really long cycle. I think that this is a revolution that dates back to the 1960s, right? That's the beginning of DARPAnet and the precursors of the internet. And, you know, in many ways, when people ask me, particularly non-crypto people, people who, are, who just don't really know about the space, where they're like, what is this stuff, right? And I think... For me, this is about solving problems that existed, you know, going back to my days in the early internet in the 1990s, 
that we just didn't have the ability to solve. And to me, the if you wanted one word to describe what this solution is, it's about it's about trust. That's always been a problem with the internet. And I, I break it down into three general categories. So you've got identity, value, and authentication. Identity is you say you're Joe, how do I know you are who you say you are? Value is, okay, I believe you're Joe, and I want to send you $20,000 because I'm buying your old SUV. How do I send it to you securely? And authentication is, okay, you're going to give me a, a free subscription to one of your products because I bought your car and I'm a nice guy. How do you know that I am who I say I am? And how do you know that I'm able to access the data that you want me to access? Those are three problems that have been outstanding for 25 years. Now you could say, well, well, don't we have a way to process payments? We have credit cards, right? And I'm like, well, but that's not really a native internet solution. That's just leveraging the existing banking lending architecture. And so I really think that this isn't just a four-year process. This is a 10, 20, 30-year process. And I don't know where the price of Bitcoin is going to be today or tomorrow, but I would feel relatively comfortable if someone came up to me and they said, you know, I'm, I'm 19 years old and I don't know what I want to do with my life. I think this crypto stuff is pretty cool, but is it really going to be around? Like, is this, I would say, yeah, in some form, and it's always impossible to predict that form. Yeah. I think this technology, the idea of decentralized networks is just an incredibly powerful idea. And it's a, it's a massive shift from the way that things have been done. If we go back to the to the last cycle, we haven't had a chance to talk about Web three yet. But you know, if you think about, it, we've talked a little bit about Web one. We haven't really talked about Web two. But the the Web two architecture that built the Googles and Facebooks and Twitters of the world, you know, those were very valuable platforms for the creators, for the founders, for the early employees who who were paid in stock. They did extremely well. But when you go on Twitter and you get 100,000 followers, you're really not monetizing that. Twitter is monetizing you. And it is the the old cliche, you know, if you're not paying, you're probably not the customer, maybe you're the product. And I think that Web3 has the ability to invert that relationship and to empower people and to allow people to monetize their own content and to build communities and culture around what they do. So I think it's just incredibly exciting. I guess also it could minimize censorship, right? In the aspect of someone getting their account turned off by Twitter themselves. Absolutely. And we we saw this with the Canadian truck protests and, yep. and a series of other events that, you know, basically the system can freeze you out. And this is really complicated and really nuanced because there are a lot of situations that that I read about every day where, you know, I get angry. I'm like, well, that's unfair. You kick this guy or gal off Facebook because you don't like the way she voted or you don't like her politics. And to me, that's really upsetting. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But the flip side is, you know, there are there are people who really wish to do harm in the world. And what happens when they have unfettered access to all these systems? I don't pretend to have any of the solutions, but it is going to be interesting to see when you can't deplatform people. And, you know, it's like, I think we deplatform people far too easily today, right? That's just my own yep. feeling. Like I see, I see people and I'm like, they got kicked off, pick the platform of your choosing for saying something that really wasn't offensive. They just had a different view politically or whatever than someone else did. And they get deplatformed. I find that pretty upsetting. But the flip side to that is what happens when we live in a world where nobody can be deplatformed? We haven't experienced the opposite side of that pendulum yet. And boy, that's going to be an interesting one. 
It's kind of like, uh, it just came to my mind is like tornado cash, right? In the sense that they allowed everyone to participate. And at the end of the day, supposedly there's bad participants. And how, how do you filter that in the future when it is decentralized in such an application like that? Nobody has the answer to that one, Joe. Okay, someone's going to start figuring that out next. Well, let's also tie in your background, the traditional finance aspect, right? And you know, a lot of times in crypto, we're talking about DeFi. What do you see as the best applications in the next few years that kind of has more mainstream adoption or at least outside of crypto native people? This is a great question. I don't think it's yield in the short term because you know we've seen all of these challenges. I think it's the yield use case has probably got to be regulated in some way because we saw what happened when people were promising 20% returns. You can give 20% returns for a time and then it and then it collapses. And I don't know that you know, some I'm sure were bad actors and some were probably good actors who just didn't realize the risk that they were running. And it's always hard to sort out which is which. The real promise of DeFi is the ability to do finance at much, much lower costs and in a way that's truly decentralized. And, you know, in terms of use cases, I think smart contracts are really incredibly powerful. I've I've interviewed uh, Sergey Nazarov a number of times over at Chainlink and you know, to hear his his vision for insurance is a fascinating use case for Chainlink and for other Oracle protocols and, and DeFi more generally, where you can have a series of sensors that the U.S. Geological Society satellites, for example, say, hey, listen, your insurance contract said that if you get more than three inches of rain in three hours, like you get paid. And the idea that you can have a smart contract where, you know, you hire me as a coder, for example, and every time I post you know, a certain amount of code or a, my code passes a certain series of, of tests, I get paid. That's incredibly powerful. Basically creating a financial system that is fully programmable. The idea that you can basically have logic that drives payment in a way that's decentralized. You and I can come to an agreement. We can take that information. We can lock it on the chain. And then neither you nor I have access to modifying that code and when the trigger gets hit, the financial transaction gets done. That's wild. That's really, really wild stuff. By the way, it's not completely the Wild West. I mean, I think you you will also have the ability, hey, you know, there was a problem. You somehow defrauded it. You manipulated the satellite data, whatever it is that the claim is, and you can take someone to court and, and they'll decide and we'll have a similar situation to what you have when you have a dispute in the traditional world. But the idea that you can do hopefully 98% of those transactions without disputes, it could be tremendously, tremendously powerful and an immense efficiency. And, and who knows where that will lead. And the more I think about it, it's more like, wow, we have 20, 30 years to really make things even more efficient from where they are today with applications. And ultimately, you look at that even more, you're like, wow, that could also eliminate a lot of third parties, intermediaries, or jobs. Kind of what is your take there? Oh, yeah, I agree <laughs> with you very much. I mean, I think this is about getting the intermediaries out of the system, right? And I think the internet in many ways did some of that, right? If you think about well, real estate we were talking about earlier, you don't have the ability to, to have these like huge bid ask spreads if people have transparency and they can go, okay, well, I actually went on the internet and I checked around the neighborhood and you know, you're asking 2,800 a month for this rent. And mostly what I see is 2,100 a month. Like I don't, you know, that information is empowering and, and that is, Probably it's not great for those third parties who are extracting rents, but it's good in aggregate for the for the system. And 
you know, exactly as you say, the ability to disintermediate those third parties, the ability to increase not just the efficiency of the transaction, but the transparency of the transaction creates great efficiencies and will also develop new industries, new business models, new ideas that we can't fathom today because they don't exist. As I, as I said, if someone had asked me in you know, 1995, it explained to me what Uber was going to be, I couldn't have envisioned it because the tools to build that, the basic raw building blocks just weren't in place yet. So how do you think the Web3 sector as a whole kind of attracts a lot more developers? Because obviously I think we've been maybe short on talent. What do you think happens or do they all come from Web2 or do we kind of incubate them through certain schools? It's a great question. I'm an entrepreneurial kind of guy. I love capitalism. So I, to me, it's it's really like once you create the demand, the supply will come. So I'm sure we'll, we'll find ways of incentivizing the creation. But I, I think what will pull the developers into the space will be the dollars and cents, right? When there when there's those job opportunities and people can go, oh, you know, I'm I'm doing this development work here in C or Java or whatever they're doing. But boy, this is really interesting because if I learn this language called Solidity, suddenly I'm going to make 50% more or, or whatever the smart contract language is or the the Web3 language is that once the use cases get built, I don't think we're going to have a hard time, you know, attracting developers. Like if you asked me this question in 1995, if you would have said, Boy, the internet is just like amazing, but where the hell are we going to get all the people to code it? You know, the answer is once the economic incentive comes, once the use cases develop, once it becomes cool, people will come and because of their own career development, their own self-interest, they'll come and, and, and they'll do that stuff. And so to me, it's, it's really about figuring out how we get those applications online. And I think, I think what, and this is kind of an unsatisfying answer, which is like, it's almost like if you put a, you put a huge pot of cold water on the stove. And you're like, well, what can I do to make this boil faster? <laughs> it's like, well, you can cover it and you can go watch the Yankees game, right? Like there's, you just kind of have to wait. Some of this stuff just, just takes time and there'll be booms and busts and along the way and, and there'll be protocols that'll collapse and there'll be fraudsters who will be led away in handcuffs. But in the long term, I think that the ideas that we've been talking about here today, Joe, are so powerful that they're just going to continue to build on themselves. And it, and it may take time, but that's my belief. I could be, I could be completely wrong, but it, you know, it harkens back to the beginning of the conversation, which were, there were, there were internet skeptics, right? Paul Krugman famously said that uh, the internet had no more economic value than the fax machine. And people from the outside are often not aware of how powerful the technology is. Sometimes people from the inside get a little too passionate about it. And it becomes <laughs> like a religion and maybe I'm guilty of that, but it's really hard to quantify, I think, just how these incredibly powerful ideas are going to play out. But when you see the building blocks and when you start to trace the line, it seems pretty clear to me that, again, when we're having this question, this conversation, hopefully in 2032 and maybe even 2042, that we're going to look back and be like, you know what? We got a lot of stuff wrong, but broadly, we were right. We were right. The trajectory for these decentralized networks, the power of digital assets has continued to grow. And my God, it's integrated into every aspect of our lives now. How could we ever have doubted it? No, I agree. Uh, people are very patient in the short term, right? <laughs> That's had to sum that up. Well, let's wrap it up anyway. Uh, one last question I want to run by you. And what is the biggest thing that you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Oh boy, that's quite a question. I would say, and this probably isn't isn't a typical investing answer, but you know, to me, it is it's about curiosity. And if I were not intensely curious, I wouldn't be at Real Vision right now. And I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world because 
I have the best job ever. I get to do what you do, which is talk <laughs> to the smartest people in the world and, and learn every day. And so for me, the passion, I was terrible at school. I hated every minute of being in school. Like I wasn't one of these kids who I just, you know, I just loved science and math and I just, you know, I, I, I hated it. I hated every second of it. But to me, what's so exciting about this world is that we can go and go on YouTube, go on Real Vision, go on other platforms and listen to people like you and listen to people who are out there doing this stuff and learn. You know, I think we have this terribly antiquated idea of learning which is it's something that you do for the first whatever 20 some odd years of your life. And then you get your CPA and you're an accountant and you just do that for 40 years. Like, I don't think that's the way the world works. The single most important thing I've ever done to increase my earning potential is to never stop learning and to always be passionate. And, you know, it's funny. I sometimes talk to people who are my age and they're like, crypto, are you kidding? It's for the 20 somethings. I'm like, dude, this is your world too. Embrace it. Like be curious. Don't be afraid and don't be afraid to fail. If it's two things that have made me like be able to get to where I am, it's it's intense curiosity and just being too stupid to quit. I guess the curiosity leads you to be the host to figure out what everyone's doing, right? That's the fun part, right? I, I mean, the fun part is I get to be the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> What's better than that? That's awesome. Well, Ash, I appreciate sharing all the great insights today. It was a pleasure to have you. And we look forward to having you again in the future. Excellent conversation. I really enjoyed this. Also, if anyone would like to get a hold of you, obviously, our listeners, what's the best way for them to do that? Come take a look at Real Vision or follow me on Twitter. Thank you. The Joe Roberts Show.